Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to see everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, find Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. We're going to start in verse 11. So um, I'll quickly review what we've talked about so far. We talked about Ephesians being written by Paul, who is very important. It's written to churches that are kind of around and in Ephesus, and it was passed around. We saw that there are both Greeks and Jews in these churches. And then in, in chapter 1, we saw Paul's song that uh, he composed about the gospel. Um, doesn't count as gospel music, though. Then we saw Paul's prayer. Uh, that was later in chapter 1. And then last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw who you were before grace and who you are having experienced grace. So the first half of the book of Ephesians is all about the gospel. And then the second half of the book of Ephesians is all about how we live in response to the gospel. So we said this last week, that the gospel is so robust, so dynamic, that the more we look into it, the more we learn, and the more we praise God, and the more we live in line with the gospel. So we are going to continue looking at Ephesians chapter 2, and it covers the gospel even further. So Ephesians 2, let's start in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, exclu excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one, <coughs> excuse me, in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have toward us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that as we study your, your word, your spirit moves in us, that we see our sin, but that we see Christ's righteousness. We see that we have been forgiven and how we can live differently. So change our hearts in this time. Let us focus on you. 
Help us to respond to your word accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna do a little exercise real quick. It's a show of hands. So if this has been your story, I want you to raise your hand. How many of us have ever experienced physical pain before? All right, just about everyone. And by just about, I mean literally everyone. How many have ever broken a bone? Anybody ever broken a bone? Yep. How many have had surgery of one kind or another? How many have thrown out your back? Anybody done that? Wow, a lot more than I thought. Okay, who has ever had a stomach bug? Raise your hand. Now, all of these ailments, don't they make us long for a new body? When we experience these pains, these sicknesses, don't we long for the day when we will be in the presence of God where there is no pain and there is no suffering anymore? The older we get, it feels like the more we long for that, right? Well, Paul, here in these verses that we're looking at, he's going to talk about the new body. He's not talking about it in the way that I just talked about it. He is talking about a body that in some ways is a little messed up, is a little broken, but is being made new and being perfected. And that is the new body of Christ, the church. So verses 1 through 10, the passage that we looked at last week, it was all about the personal redemptive experience. It's about how you experienced salvation in Christ. We learned about who you were, learned about who you are. Now, in these verses, verses 11 through 22, Paul shifts gears. He spoke last week to to us personally about our experience with God. This week, however, he's going to talk to us about our corporate experience of grace. He goes from talking to people individually to talking to people as a group. And so it is very important for us to understand this because we're not just individuals here. We are a group of people longing to see the work of God in our midst. So let's start in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So he says, you were Gentiles. But he says Gentiles, plural. This is a little awkward in the English language. So in other languages, you have a difference between you and you. In English, you singular and you plural, the same word. But we in the South invented a word for it. It's called (laughs) y'all. So here what he's saying is y'all are Gentiles. He says y'all were Gentiles in the flesh. He's referring to something that is actually physical, a a physical determiner, a physical, physical distinction that the Gentiles had. What was the physical sign of the covenant for the Jews? Circumcision. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, we look back at Genesis 17, God promises Abraham that he will bless him with innumerable offspring. And how will we know, how will Abraham know who those offspring are? Well, they will be physically marked. And so if they were circumcised, it was God saying, these are the people that I was talking to Abraham about. And the Gentiles didn't have this sign. So 
They are called, in, in verse 11, let's continue reading, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So they were using this, the, the Jew, Jews were using this as a derogatory term. Uh, it was an insult to them. It was, it, in, in our modern vernacular, maybe if someone called you uncivilized or uncultured swine, uh, it, it was not something that they would hear and be like, oh, thank you so much. It was something that they used as, as a tool to put others down. That is, see, you are not God's people, but we are God's people. Because we have the sign of the covenant, we are the ones chosen by God. So uh, I don't know if you have ever been looked down on by anybody before. Not a great feeling. You know, if somebody came up to you and said, you are just so uncivilized, you wouldn't be like, oh, thank you, that really made my day. Right? This is what was happening with the Jews and the Gentiles. They would bring this up to remind them of their place, to look down on them from their position with God. But then, verse 12, we see, At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Um, doesn't, doesn't get any more encouraging for them right there. You know, we were hoping to see a little turn, but he describes the condition that the Gentiles were in before they experienced the grace of God. And he describes this condition, describes what it is to be in the flesh in five ways. And just so you know, no matter your heritage, you were a Gentile before you came to Christ. You did not live at the time of Jesus where the old covenant was in effect, so you would have been considered a Gentile according to this. So it matters that we look at these five markers, these five descriptions, because this is explaining our state. Last week we talked about what we were like before, uh, who we were before grace. This is kind of a um, recap of that, so we're going to go through it really quickly. Number one. You were separate from Christ. That's what he says. He says, verse 12, at that time, you were without Christ. That is, you did not have a relationship with the only person that could bring you into a relationship with your creator. You had no savior. You stood condemned. You had no chance of having a relationship with God. Number two, he says, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Have you ever been excluded before? Not a great experience in most cases. Um, the, maybe the worst part of the consumer experience is when you see a sale or something like that and you get really excited about it and then it says some exclusions apply. Products excluded include and then it lists all the good things that you would actually want to buy. <laughs> Exclusion usually is not a good thing. It's usually a, a bad thing. But maybe your translation doesn't say um, exclusion. Maybe it says you were aliens. Now, what is an alien? It's someone who does not belong in some way. It's someone who does not have the rights and privileges of citizenship. So the Jews viewed themselves as a theocracy. They believed that they were ultimately ruled by God, that God had given them this covenant and that he was their king, they were his subjects. And as his, his subjects, they had certain rights. 
certain privileges. Namely, uh, the right and privilege to have a relationship with God and to honor him in a way by following the law. But there were people who lived within the boundaries of the country of Israel that were not Jews. These people were called aliens. So while they lived there, they didn't have the rights and the privileges that natural Jews had. This is how he is explaining what we were as Gentiles. So then he goes on, number three, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. What covenants is he referring to? The covenants that were from Abraham to his offspring. The original one in Genesis 17 and then passed down in different iterations. Exodus 6, 7 says this, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's the foundation of that covenant. And part of that promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 17 was that that he would bless them, that he would give them favor. But the Gentiles weren't part of that. They didn't receive that blessing. They were excluded. They were foreigners to that promise. Number four, he says, you were without hope. What was the hope of the Jews? What's that? The Messiah. That's exactly it. The Messiah was coming, and that Messiah, he would end all of your enemies. They would no longer rule over you. He would end the governments that ruled you so that you wouldn't have to pay those high taxes anymore. He would restore you so that you would have your land that your ancestors once had. And that hope helped the Jews get through a lot, helped them survive many trials, uh, helped them survive the desolation of their country, helped them survive slavery, it helped them survive exile. And what Paul is saying is here is that the Gentiles did not have that hope. And then number five, they were with, you were without God in the world. This is pretty much just a summary of everything that he just said. It is the bottom line of the Gentile condition that you were without God in the world. Now you can see that Paul here, he draws some, uh, some similarities from what he talked about last week. So who you were. As individuals, he kind of does the same thing here with the Gentiles. So you were dead. Gentiles were separated from Christ. You were in step with the world. Gentiles were not God's people. You were in step with the devil. Gentiles were without promise. You were naturally disobedient. Gentiles were without hope. You were fit for wrath, and Gentiles were without God. What he wants us to see here, what Paul wants us to see, is that you are not just condemned and hopeless as an individual. The human race, apart from the covenant of God, was condemned and hopeless. And then we move into verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. Remember last week when we were studying, we moved from what you were to or who you were to who you are. There was this transition. It was a phrase. It was two words. Do you remember what it was? But God. In moving from his idea of what the Gentiles were dealing with to something else, he has a transitional phrase here. And it is not but God. It is but now in Christ Jesus. 
So we have discovered the state of the Jews before grace, and we have this transition, but now in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about hope. If you were without hope as a group, as the human race, if you were without hope, you were longing for hope. And you can find it in one place, in Christ Jesus. That's his point here, is that whatever you have looked for, whatever you have looked to for hope, there is one place that you will actually find it, and that is in Christ Jesus. But of course, the Gentiles looked in different places for hope, just as all people do. So let's think about this for a second. What are some places that people look for hope today? What do they trust in for hope? Government. Government. Finances, yeah. Marriage. Marriage. Mm. Absolutely. Family. Success at work, maybe. Stability. See, what these people would have looked for, looked to for hope would have been kings, kingdoms, wealth, armies, family. Society, business, that's really not different than what we look to for hope, is it? But we are reminded here in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, this is where we find our hope. Now, how many of us uh, cannot stand to leave something incomplete? Like if you start something, you want to finish it. If, if you have an equation, one side has to equal the other. I'm like that. I'm assuming a lot of you are like that. Um, I would really, really, really like to tell you that the second part of what we're looking at today is another list. It matches the five things that we saw about the Gentiles. I mean, we saw that last week, right? Who you were and who you are. So we would think maybe Paul is going to give us what the Gentiles were dealing with and then now how that is fulfilled in Christ. Does not happen. <laughs> Kind of upsetting, but it's even better than what I would write because he goes from who you were, what you were dealing with as a group of people apart from the promises of God to how Christ affects your relationships. He takes this idea of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection and applies it to how that affects our relationships as Christians. So, this is what we're going to see. The gospel affects our relationships in two ways. The gospel affects our relationships in two ways. Number one, and we're going to spend a lot more time on number one than number two. Number one, Jesus makes peace. Jesus makes peace. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were far away from God. And what brought us near? The blood of Christ, right? Now, um, we don't really think of blood in our culture in the same way that these cultures would have thought about it. It was very different. In most cultures that, have that did exist in history, they thought of blood as life. Blood equals life. And we can see this in the Old Testament especially. So 
the, uh, the punishment for sin is what? Death. That's right. In the Old Testament, these people sinned, but they didn't die, right? Instead, they were given this command that when they sinned, they were supposed to take an animal, and that animal was supposed to be put on the altar. Usually then, that an- this is going to get a little graphic, I'm sorry, that animal's throat was slit, and the blood would pour out. That is, that animal poured out its blood so that these people didn't have to pour out their blood. It was the animal's life for the people's life. As we move to the New Testament, we understand why this existed. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Jesus spilt his blood so that you would never have to spill your blood for your sins. Jesus gave up his life for your sins so that you would not have to give up your life for your sins. Isn't that an amazing truth that we see here in verse 13? But he applies this. Instead of continuing to talk to the Gentiles, because he is focused on the Gentiles for a little bit, instead of continuing to talk to the Gentiles, Paul begins to open this discussion up to everyone. So when you were younger, did you ever have a situation where you... And someone else got in trouble for doing something. Maybe you got in a fight. Maybe I'll just, uh, I don't know what kids do. But you got in trouble. And you had to go before a teacher or a parent. And uh, as you're standing there, the two of you are standing there, the authority, the parent, the teacher, begins to light into the other person that's with you. And they're like, how could you do this? This is so immature. You know better than this. You need to respect the rules. And you're just kind of standing there like, okie dokie, <laughs> hearing all of this directed at this other person. Well, some of us, if we could admit it, kind of had a little bit of pleasure in that moment. Like, this guy is just kidding. <laughs> he is taking the wrath right now. You know, and this, we saw it coming down, even though it was may, maybe my fault too. It's all being poured out on him. And then the teacher or the parent turned their gaze toward you and began to unleash the fury of their wrath on you. Has that ever happened to anybody? That could have been the heart of the Jews here because what Paul has been doing for a little bit, he has been talking to the Gentiles. The Jews could have gone, yeah, yeah, they were terrible. I mean, look at all those things that they were dealing with not being in the covenant. And so Paul takes this opportunity to go, "Mm -mm, you are not off the hook. You cannot excuse yourself from this part of the discussion. And so he opens it up to anybody who is hearing this or reading this. Verse 14, it says, For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. Now he was saying before, you and your, but he changes it to our Because it's no longer just about the Gentiles. It's about everybody. And he says that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So um, I don't have a picture of the temple, obviously. But I'm sure you have it memorized exactly what it was like. Uh, Think of concentric circles, right? Even though it wasn't a circle. Think of it like a plaza or a complex, where there are uh, different realms that you would walk into, different courtyards maybe. 
And so the furthest courtyard was for Jews and Gentiles who observed the Jewish faith. But then the next courtyard, which there was a wall between the two, was specifically for Jews. So the Gentiles were not allowed in there. In fact, there was a sign beside the door that said, Gentiles, do not enter. If you do, you will fall dead and you will have no one to blame but yourself. Just as an aside, is that not an awesome sign? I mean, we have beware of dog signs. If you put that up, it might be a little more effective. So this wall existed to keep the Jews and the Gentiles apart in some way. And what Paul says is that wall has been torn down in the death of Christ. That no longer is there this dividing line between Jews and Gentiles, but anyone who will have faith in Jesus is part of one group. The two become one. So uh, that doesn't mean that there are not still dividers in this world, right? If we were all Christians, maybe some of those dividers wouldn't exist. But there are certain lines that we draw, especially in our society, where we say, that's you, this is me, don't cross the line. What are some dividers that are put up in our culture? Economic status? Yeah, yeah. Racial barriers, absolutely. And we've seen that on full display for the past year. Political lines? Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? Religious? Yeah. And I mean, even within evangelicalism, which evangelical means that you believe the Bible's true and that Jesus actually did die for our sins and raise from the grave. Um, even it, within that, there are several dividing lines that are set up. Now, not all of these lines are bad that the world has. You know, there, there are some good lines that we can have. Uh, if, if you're a terrorist, you know, we would hope that there's a line between terrorists and not terrorists. But we know that there is division in this world. One of the dividing lines that existed in this time, even maybe in the church, was the law. So the Jews believed that it was Jesus plus the law, that people still had to obey the law. That's the Old Testament. And they would say, if you are truly righteous, you will follow the law. If you are truly God's children, you will want to follow the law. But verse 15, look what it says. Jesus made of no effect the law consisting of command and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in what? Peace. Here's what Paul's saying. The dividing line that the Jews would like to hold up has been destroyed. The Jews are no closer to God, the believing Jews are no closer to God than the believing Gentiles. It is not as if the Jews are 100% God's children and then the Gentiles are 
50% God's children. What he is saying is all who believe in Jesus are 100% God's children. That if they are believing, they are just alike and they are one. And because Jesus has made us one, we are to have peace with one another. Because Jesus has reconciled us, because he has made us one, we are to have peace with one another. How can people who previously hated each other, who completely disagreed on some things, how can they have peace with one another? Look at verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. So how can we have peace? How can people who were previously enemies have peace with one another? He says, through the cross. Now, why would Paul bring up the cross here? What is Jesus' death? What does the cross have to do with peace between two different groups? Here's what he's saying. The ultimate basis for peace is the gospel. That if you want to have peace with someone, it has to be worked through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what that means. You were in opposition to God. What the Bible says is you hated God. And in that state, God sought you. In love, he gave his son so that you would be brought close to him. If God did that for us, when we were sinners, when we hated him, can we not then have peace with others who we might disagree with? Can we not show grace to others even though we don't agree on everything? Can we lay down our guns because Jesus has died? So what are some things? Because we can be honest. Even though we're Christians, we're going to disagree on some things. What are some things that Christians disagree on? Baptism? Baptism? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could look at uh, Presbyterians who love Jesus, who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and we definitely disagree on baptism with them. What are some other things that Christians disagree on? Vices? Vices, yeah. Yeah, what, what, is, uh, what is okay to do as a Christian and what is not okay to do as a Christian? Church? Yeah, church structure especially, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know. Worship is a big Different types of worship. Different types of worship, yeah. Yeah. You know, do you only sing these songs? Do you include these songs? Do you only include those songs and nothing else? Anything else? Communion? Communion? Yeah. Yeah, and even um, Baptist churches will disagree on who can take communion. If there are churches that believe, if you are not in a Baptist church, that you should never take communion in a Baptist church. Now, I don't personally believe that. There are several things that Christians disagree on. Christians who love Jesus, who are studying his word to understand what the truth is, they can disagree. So how is it that 
we can disagree as Christians and still have peace. Remember, Paul is writing this to people who are in the same church, right? These people, they were part of one local church and they are having disagreements. So how is it that we who disagree can still have peace? Different people who have different cultures, who have different preferences, all living at peace together in one church. How can that be done? Yeah, yeah. You agree on what Jesus has done for us. And if we do that, if we agree on that, if we agree on the essential of the gospel, what it frees us up to do is lay down other things. Now, I am not saying that we don't hold convictions. Obviously, we do. But within a local church, we lay down our preferences. We lay down our arms when it comes to things that are not essential necessarily. Things that would not kick somebody out of the, we would not kick somebody out of the church for. We lay that down because Jesus died and rose again, gave us salvation by grace, so now we can extend grace to others. We're going to get into that more as we go on. Verse 17. He came and proclaim the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Jesus proclaimed the good news of peace to the Gentiles who were far away from God, who, who knew nothing about him. But he also proclaimed that same gospel of peace to the Jews who knew God and were in covenant with him. It is not that the Jewish Christians have some different form of access to the Father. There is one way that we access the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is not, uh, it's not only that they receive the same news of peace, though. What does he say? He says that you... Uh, that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's what he's saying. No matter what your background, and this was Jewish or Gentile, but let's, let's put it in our terms. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you came to know Jesus at a young age. Maybe you came to know Jesus later in life, and you were never in church when you were younger. No matter what your background you have the same spirit of God that the other person who has saved us. That you have the same spirit in you that unifies you not just to God, but to the other person in your church. If that's true, that should change the way that we interact as people in a church. Now, it's not that some people get the cheap seats that are kind of far away from God, but they're still in the stadium. And then there are some who get the front row seats to God. All of us in Jesus, we are no longer strangers. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. More than that, we are children of God. I mean, does, does anybody here have an older sibling? Anybody have an older sibling? Okay, how strange would it be if your sibling came to you and said, hey, 
you know, I'm a little bit older than you, so I wanted you to know this. I'm actually more a child of our parents than you because I was born first. I've been alive longer. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> Yet the Jews could have felt this way because they were in covenant God, with God before. Some of us might feel this way because we grew up in church. Some of us may feel this way in a few years when other people are coming into the church and it's like, well, they weren't there at the beginning. But what we need to see is that we are one with the people of God and we should have peace because of that. So we see that Jesus makes peace. That was number one. Number two, and this one's much shorter, Jesus builds us together. In the last three verses, Paul describes the house of God. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, Members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. This obviously is not referring to a physical house, right? It's a spiritual house. It's the, the people of God is what he's talking about here. And it is built on the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. That is, those who actually saw Jesus bodily, uh, his bodily resurrection, and those who walked with him, who knew his commands and passed that testimony down. That would be the apostles. And then the prophets are the ones who spoke of Jesus long before he would come, who told us what he would come to do, who he is, and how he would save his people forever. Based on those testimonies, we are being built together. But what is the cornerstone? What matters most in this house? It is Jesus himself. He's saying that, yes, these are important, but remember the gospel is central. All of these people were talking about Jesus. He is the one that we must keep our eyes on. And ultimately, he is the cornerstone. That means that he is the one essential part of the house. He is the one that, that binds it all together. Without that cornerstone, the house is not complete. It will not stand. It will fall apart. It says that we are, that Jesus builds us together. Have you ever seen a job site where uh, it's right before they start like framing the house and stuff like that? If you walk up on it, you'll see there might be a, a pile of two by fours right there. Might be a pile of two by sixes over there. A bucket of nails there, um, maybe some bags of concrete over there, maybe some brackets over here. There are these groups of materials, but when they start building, everything changes. These different groups start becoming something else, something greater. So it goes from this pile and that pile and that pile to one structure. This is kind of the picture that we are given here by Paul. We may come from different backgrounds. We may have different experiences. You may have really identified as this in the past. But what is happening as we learn more of God's will, as we grow in holiness, as we reflect on the gospel, is we who are in different groups are coming together to be one. We are forming one house. And he goes on, verse 21. He says, In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy 
temple. Do you see that? We're coming from uh, different experiences being put together as one thing. We may have different opinions, may have different tastes, we may may have uh, different cultures, but we are being built together as from, from individuals to one body. And then verse 22, in him, you are also being built together for God's indwelling in the spirit. Now this last verse is pretty interesting. This is the plural, so it's y'all. He says, y'all are being built together for God's indwelling of the spirit. Now, as we set aside our differences, as we lay down our preferences, as we learn to be at peace with one another in so many different ways, we are being built together. We are being unified into something different. Somehow, through all of that, God unifies us in such a way that we are being made more and more ready, more and more prepared, more and more welcoming of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is a strange thought, isn't it? We talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. What it's talking about, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of God living inside people. But here, it talks about the indwelling of the Spirit in a different way. He's not talking about the Spirit living in individuals. He's talking about the Spirit living in the group, in the church. So think think of it like this. As we long for peace, as we strive for peace more and more, the more the Spirit is present in our church. I mean, shouldn't that affect the way that we interact? Shouldn't that affect the way that we view ourselves in the church? Shouldn't that affect the relationships that we have in a local church? Of course it should. I mean, do you want to see revival? Then long for peace. Then work to having peace with others in the church. Do you want to see people reached for Jesus? Then long for and pursue peace in this body. So that's what we see in, in, this, in these few verses that Paul gives us. And this is why one of our core values is gracious community. So we do life together. We share our lives so that we can love, serve, encourage, and build each other up. That's community. But it's not just any type of community. It is gracious community. We must be people that choose to extend grace to others, that choose to overlook some of our differences, that choose to lay down our preferences for the good of the gospel. There are going to be people that your personality and their personality, they just don't mesh well. We have to extend grace. There are going to be people that will come into this church, that will hopefully, by the grace of God, meet Jesus, and they have no idea how to act. They're going to say things that are probably inappropriate. They're going to believe things that are maybe a little wacky. They're going to treat you in ways that you don't want to be treated. And what we have to do is we have to extend grace to each other. 
Because when we do that, we are pursuing peace. We are welcoming the Holy Spirit in our church. And it is only through his power that we will ever be effective as the people of God. So that's what I got for tonight. It's not as, I like it a little more structured than that, but that's what I see as as Paul wrote this and what he's telling us. Let us be people who seek peace with one another. Let us be people who extend grace to one another. Let us be people who are seeing ourselves as being built together in Christ and let us enjoy it and pursue it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the grace that you have toward us. We thank you that though we don't deserve your love, that you have chosen to love us. And so help us extend that love and that grace to each other. As we uh, have growing pains, as we figure out that we disagree on things, help us to be gracious. Help us to always keep our eyes on you. Continue to press into our hearts the truth of the gospel. And help us to react to that by loving others, by serving others, by appreciating others who are not like us. We want to be used by you, Lord. We want your spirit to fill our church. We want to be part of your kingdom work. So help us do these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for tonight, um, I want you to do this. Find somebody that maybe you don't know very well and ask them about their favorite movie. And uh, just ask them, hey, what's your favorite movie? Why is that your favorite movie? And I'm going to give you just a second because I know some of you are like, well, is that rated R? I don't know if I can say that. But uh, ask, them, ask them about their favorite movie, why it is their favorite movie. Ask them how you can be praying for them this week. And make sure that you write it down, that you put it in your phone or something like that, so you can actually be praying for that person. And then uh, pray that they, would, uh, that they would see they are part of the body of Christ. Pray that they would know how to pursue peace where they need to pursue peace this week. Pray that their hearts would be softened to what God is doing in them. All right, so take about five, ten minutes, and then we'll come back together for a few announcements. Uh, If you have time this week, go ahead and watch the movie that whoever you talked to said. (laughs) Um, So a few announcements before before we dismiss. Uh, Thank you for being here tonight, because I know that it's Valentine's Day. And uh, yeah, I know that all of you could have been doing other things, so thank you for being here. Um, this is not a Valentine's date, so don't take it that way, but we're glad that you're here. Um, real quick, I want to, I don't talk about this enough, and and it's going to be something that we talk about a lot, um, especially, uh, after we finish Ephesians, and this is our, our mission as a church. So we are given a mission that's in the Great Commission, right? So whenever a church has a mission, it's just an iteration of that. It's a rewording of that. So this is what ours is, to see lives transformed by the gospel, to see lives transformed by the gospel. That's why we exist. So we exist. So when we come in here and we are uh, studying the Bible and we are hearing the word of God and the spirit is working in us, 
We want to see our lives transformed in overcoming sin, in, um, in getting rid of some of the habits that we have that are not God-glorifying. We want to uh, see transformation in our relationships. We, we want to have peace. We want to see our lives transformed by the gospel, but not just that. We also want to see other people's lives transformed by the gospel. We want to be a church that preaches the good news of what Jesus has done. And when people hear that, the Spirit works in them. And they go from enemies of God to children of God. That's why we exist, to see lives transformed by the gospel. So we're going to talk about that over and over and over, but I want to put it in front of us again. And then our vision is, uh, we're not going to talk about it a lot tonight, but it is redemption and restoration in our homes, our churches, and our communities. Redemption and restoration in our homes, our churches, and our communities. We're going to get into that more next week. But that's our mission. That's our vision. There are going um, to be times where we're absolutely sick of hearing that because it's going to be ingrained. But it's these things that, that make us unique in some way, um, it, even though the mission of God is for all churches. But it's, gonna, it's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's a little different from other churches. So we're going to continue to uh, reiterate those things in the weeks to come. A quick update on the building search. There's actually no update, so be, pray- <laughs> be praying that God would uh, you know, give us whatever he has for us and pray specifically that he would give us a space that would work for what we're trying to do. Um, our finance team, they are continuing to work to make policies and procedures that protect the finances of the church so that you can have confidence as you give that uh, we are stewarding, that we are managing those things well, and that there is financial accountability. Uh, if you want to give and you, you have not been able to yet, you can go to our website, anchorfreeport.com, anchorfreeport.com, you can give on there. 